Welcome to the Business in a Digital Age podcast series. These new podcasts feature interviews with change makers, mold breakers, and leading figures who show us what matters in the digital age. They share key insights and talk about what you can do to thrive in the years ahead. We explore what makes our guests tick and what they think will most transform our lives in the next few years and what you can do about it. Today's guest is Nazir Afsal, OBE. Where do we start in introducing Nazir? There's so much to say. Nazir is a former Chief Crown Prosecutor and Chief Executive of the Association of Police and Crime Commissioners. While at the Crown Prosecution Service, he was responsible for more than 100,000 prosecutions each year and prosecuted some of the most high-profile cases in the country. He was the first Muslim to be appointed as a Chief Crown Prosecutor and has been called the Champion of the Ignored by the Sunday Times. The Times calls him forensically intelligent and an inspiring figure. Since August 2022, he's also been Chancellor of the University of Manchester and been awarded honorary doctorates in law by the University of Birmingham, Manchester, Bradford and Leicester, and London Southbank Universities. His memoir, The Prosecutor, is being adapted for the screen, and his latest book, The Race to the Top, Structural Racism and How to Fight It, was published late last year. It's a compelling must-read for those who want to understand the scale of inequality which still affects UK PLC. Nazir, I guess the, 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 the most obvious question, what, what was the catalyst for writing uh, that book? This is my second book. My first book was my memoir, um, The Prosecutor, uh, which um, came out three years ago. Then uh, I was thinking about what next, and I remember a conversation I had with somebody called Theresa May, I don't know if you remember her, and, um, and she, uh, she said to me, Nazir, look, how can there be uh, racism when you are the chief prosecutor? I said, have you got a few minutes, Prime Minister? Uh, and uh, to her credit, she gave me a few minutes. And at the end of that conversation, uh, I think she realized that um, it's not as straightforward. That just because you are a leader um, or you know, perceived to be a leader does not give you uh, uh, immunity from, from bigotry. And, uh, and I think what I wanted to do in, the, in this book is to capture the stories of um, other leaders, so across the sector, so not just the law, uh, politics, arts, media, culture, business, health, you name it. Uh, I've spoken to leaders of color in all of those institutions, uh, on all of their areas, and guess what? They had exactly the same experiences. It, it may manifest in different ways, uh, but it did not matter um, that you had reached the top, or that's why it's called waste at the top, did not reach the top of your profession or near the top of your profession. Um, you will suffer and have suffered. And the other, the other thing I need to say was that... Um, this is not historic stuff. I'm asking them how they're feeling now. What are they experiencing now when they are in this world? So it's not, yeah, you know, I, you know, I was beaten black and blue. I was growing up, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's then. But, you know, in the last three, four, five years, people are still experiencing um, various forms of racism and other bigotry, actually. Um, and that, I think, is something the stories need to be told. And that's what the book's about. And, and looking at leaders, uh, in organizations in in 
your book, you eschew recommendations, which frustratingly tend to gather dust in filing cabinets. Uh, and instead, you, you say that change needs to come from the top. Um, what do you think needs to change in the culture of most businesses to bring about lasting deep change? How do we get those without that change, without power at the top table? And I suppose also talking about leaders, how can leaders be held accountable for progress in this area? Well, I think what's happened in the last two decades, um, since the uh, McPherson report, which was about institutional racism, is actually people are doing a lot of tick boxing. Uh, so what they've done is, right, I need an EDI strategy. Here it is. There you go. Put it in the final cabinet. Uh, I need an EDI officer. Right, here she is, or here he is, but she's not on the board, so she doesn't have any actual influence. Um, I need. Uh, we need um, progression training. Uh, you know, all the stuff that... We've every organization has done, but they just do it because they feel they need to do it. They don't think about the outcomes. They're not looking at what difference does it actually make to your organization or whether it makes any difference to your organization. I think that's key here. And also some of the things we all learn from our mistakes. Um, so I'll give you, a, give you an example. One of the examples I mentioned in the book is the, the Rooney rule, which has nothing to do with Win Rooney, by the way. Um, but it's an American concept, which is, uh, which we've adopted here, which is that if, when you get to the final sort, of, of a city role, that you should always have one minority uh, or one woman, at least, uh, on your final shortlist. And uh, it was introduced and it's been introduced across organizations and they all feel, and do you know what happens? They still appoint the same person they would ordinarily appoint. The sad thing is that the person who, who has been shortlisted because of the rule uh, then can't go to a tribunal uh, because they've been shortlisted. So, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult for them to argue that they've been discriminated against when they got the final panel. Um, yet, so actually that rule, which was meant to make it more likely for you to progress if, if you've come from alternative routes, is actually now being used to protect the institution, the organization, from any claims against them. So no change happens. Um, I did a review of London Fire Brigade's culture, which I published at the end of last year, and which led to an enormous amount of uh, publicity, but more than that, an enormous amount of uh, reckoning, really, within fire services across the country. And I was brought in by um, the Commissioner and the Mayor of London to do this review uh, on the back of the fact that a young fire officer, a black fire officer, had taken his life, uh, and there were concerns about bullying and harassment and other issues within the institutional organization. And what I did in the review is I listened. So more than 2,000, more than a third of the staff of London Fire Brigade, hundreds of them, by the way, who had never spoken at all about their experiences or the experiences they'd seen, finally got an opportunity to talk about their experiences. And so when, when that report was published, people were saying, yeah, what, what, what's going on here? What's going? I said, these are not my words. These are your staff's words. So when you ask me the question about what leaders can do differently, it's listen. Uh, you know, it's not enough... Yeah, well, I've had to tell me, when I hear what my staff are saying, hearing and listening are two different things. Hearing, uh, yeah, we all hear, well, potentially can. Listening is acting upon what you have heard, you know, and really understanding what you're receiving or what you're seeing. And I think that's the key here, that, uh, you know, culture, culture is top down. So when you look at institutions which are failing or which are where workforces are, where the workplace isn't very safe, uh, guess what? You will find a leader that's not very good at their job. You know, the two go hand in hand. The opposite is true as well. 
So, uh, you know, London Fire Brigade is a good example. You know, whilst the organization is uh, is struggling and, and now responding to my report with the recommendations I put in there, they have a leader who called me in. The leader said, I've got a problem. He wasn't dragged kicking and screaming. You know, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner was dragged kicking and screaming to carry out a review of her culture at the time. Um, you know, and most institutions, you know, something happens, a tribunal case goes against them, whatever it is. And they'd bring it in. He said, no, I think I've got a problem. And I want you to help me identify what that problem is and what needs to work. That's a good leader. You know, uh, and uh, I'm afraid um, they are fewer than they ought to be. Uh, and But, you know, we can learn from each other. And I think that's the key. Really good leadership, really good listening, uh, amplifying the voices of your, of your workplace and your staff, listening to what your stakeholders or customers or clients think. Really listening, not just you know ticking a box, uh, and not doing the same old, same old. Yeah, you know, the definition of insanity, isn't it? That you do the same thing, expect a different outcome. Yeah, uh, it's, the reality is, we you know to make a difference, you've got to act different. And um, as as well as the unarguably powerful uh, case, ethical case for increasing diversity and inclusion in business, there is of course also the business case. And uh, a McKinsey study in 2020 found that uh, the greater the representation, the higher the likelihood of outperformance. And businesses we work for tell us they want a diverse and inclusive team working for them. But why do you think that the, the business case is still too often ignored? Do you know, I don't know, because I mean, these are yeah, I, I've worked in public sector most of my life. So, uh, you know, but then again, I ran a business. We had a you know, hundred million pound budget. My area did. I had forty. I managed fourteen hundred lawyers. So just imagine what that's like any day, day of the week. Um, and um, so I did run a business. But you, you would think that that you know, your performance and driving your performance, improving your performance, would be the front of your mind. And going back to my other fabricate example, as part of that review, um, Tony, I met with um, the Grenfell families, um, you know, all of them uh, pretty much so, and to understand what their, what their view of, of fire services were. And, and to, you know, to, to those who may not know, you know, 72 people died in that fire in, uh, 20, in 2017, and um, 18 of them were children, and the vast majority were from minoritized communities. Uh, they were, the, you know, impoverished communities. And uh, I asked them, as the inquiries asked them, what, did it ha- what, what would have made a difference? And do you know what they said? If we had been a voice at the table that decided what cladding should go on that building, they would have put better cladding on the building. The people who made the decision were as far removed for the people most impacted by it than you can possibly imagine. And that's what happens when you have decisions taken away from those who are most impacted by it. You need to have them in the room. Uh, it's, not, it's also not enough just to consult. I keep hearing this. We've consulted with, that's not enough. They need to be in the room when you're making your decision because then they will hear what, how you approach it. And you will also listen to when they have a uh-oh moment here, uh, which doesn't normally come out of a survey or, uh, or, a, or a consultation. So the best decisions always are the most diverse groups of people 
Uh, and it, you know, that's it. You know, so I've always made the case: it's not about numbers; it's not about you know quotas. It's about the quality of decision making, which will always be improved. And uh, if you have the same people around the table with the same schools, the same universities, the same experiences, then the same decision <laughs> comes up. You know, if you have uh, somebody who's come from a different background or has different experiences, you can rest assured they'll come up with something or say something that otherwise would not have been um, considered. And, and so that, that, why they don't do it is I don't, it may be because they think it's too difficult. Mm. But, I, you know, let me explain it this way. Had they done it before Grenfell, they wouldn't have had six years of inquiries. They wouldn't have had 72 lives lost. They wouldn't have had 18 children die. They wouldn't have destroyed a community. So had they, you know, taken a little bit more time and approached it in a, in a, in a more um, business-like way, uh, certainly around more diversity, then we wouldn't be where we are today. So there's, you know, it shortcuts all of this if you get it right at the beginning. It's very interesting, actually, that um, even if there might be a will to change for the motel, that that people might be afraid of getting it wrong. Um, Barack Obama, um, in his first volume of presidential memoirs, said that we sometimes need to rely on the forbearance and goodwill of those around us uh, to fit in the blanks and catch our drift if we inadvertently put our foot in it. Yeah. Um, to encourage the debate, to encourage more people at the top to enter the debate, debate. What what would you suggest? How do we get people talking and ensuring that they don't feel afraid to make change happen? Tony, I think you're right. I think it's a confidence issue. I'll give you another example. I remember a long time ago, 20 years ago, maybe, a chief constable said to me, Nazir, would you come with me to this particular um, community environment? I said, is that because you want me to talk to them about what the prosecution does and the law. No, no, I want you to hold my hand, right? Uh, and that was somebody who'd reached the top of their profession, who um, you would imagine, um, but they felt uncomfortable going into an environment. Now, the good thing here is he sought my help. You know, so leaders don't know everything. You know, They don't know everybody. Uh, and maybe they see as a weakness actually seeking help support whatever it is actually it's the exact opposite it's a strength to know that you can uh, tap into your networks uh, when you need to engage with a certain group or not as the case may be and I think that's something we need to change the change you know, literally 180 degrees from from seeing it as a uh, weakness to seeing it as a strength uh, and and then also we need to reward leaders who do this kind of work you know uh, if you if you get a bonus every year for doing what everybody else does, then you're not valuing the one that goes and does a bit extra. You know, if they have spent uh, several weekends talking to groups that they wouldn't otherwise engage with, don't treat that person as the same as somebody who's done the same thing without having done that. You know, uh, it comes down to you know if the institution values something, then it pays for it uh, and uh, rewards it and recognises it and. You know, people's. I remember when I was um, chief prosecutor, and you know, I, I was doing all this engagement stuff, and net, I've never figured in my PDR, my my personal, you know, the, you know, the your appraisal report. There was no no box for it, you know, uh, and, um, and and I thought this is the thing that's adding the most value 
the public are beginning to see us as a prosecutor's organization, understand what we do, having more confidence in the justice system as a result. This is the thing that has the most value, but it wasn't even being measured, you know, uh, or re recognized. And, and so, you know, at the end of the day, that's how we, we bring the change. But as I say, leaders need to be trained in this. Uh, don't, we mustn't make assumptions that everybody knows how to network. You know, I went to, I'm now Chancellor of Manchester University, and I, yeah. and I organized um, an event with a lot of, uh, a lot of um, I can't put it, any different, high net worth individuals. Uh, in terms of philanthropy. And uh, there was a, a very, very senior figure from uh, from the institution there, uh, and he told me beforehand, I don't really know how to talk to people. Yeah, he's very good, phenomenal. He's a world-leading expert on, on whatever field he's in, but he doesn't know how to network. He, and he accepts that, understands that. And so I've now, working with him, you know, he's, you know, he's much, much older than... Uh, you know, he's not, he's not in his prime anymore. Uh, so, but he wants to learn to how to network. So don't assume that people have all the skills. People need to be helped along the way. Very sound advice. Um, I mean, the, the authors of our book um, are three white middle-class men, um, as are the majority of senior lawyers. Um, and we want to know how we can be better allies and I think that, that what you've just said is a, is a very sound way of doing it. Absolutely. And success, yeah, you, they're, they're all out there. It's just, we need to look. You know, uh, sometimes, you know, again, I've written in a book about uh, application processes. We have the same application process for every job, you know, for every senior job, blah, 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 CV, blah, blah, blah. Actually, some institutions, some cultures don't know about that or don't understand how that, they don't look on LinkedIn or whatever it is to find a role. They don't, they, they, they don't, they work in different ways. And so institutions have to be much more flexible in trying to identify uh, its talent, you know, uh, and, and ensure that they are supported. Uh, another example I give is of a very senior leader um, who spent many, made many attempts to get promoted and eventually got promoted. And he said, I, I, nobody ever helped me. Nobody ever told me this is what your application should look like. This is how you should prepare for an interview. This is what you should do with the board. Nobody ever told me. Uh, uh, and I thought, well, that's a terrible mistake, you know, because uh, he would have been in that role a, lot, a, a long time ago and, and made a bigger difference, I would imagine, than he has done. So, yeah, we, we, we've got to, you know, shake ourselves out of process uh, and, and actually start thinking about how we really develop talent. And it's, it's not just at the, the top um, what advice do you have for individuals who are passionate about promoting diversity and inclusion within their organization, but maybe facing apathy or even resistance from the leadership? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm different to most people. I'd be calling that out in their <laughs> So I'd be making a proper little fuss about that. And, uh, uh, and I've always done that. That's just that's just me. But I understand the power dynamic is such that. Um, uh, but you used the word in the last question, allies. You and that's really important, uh, and it's it's part of networking. But it's a bit more than that. A bit more focused on that. Is identifying not the institution is not hundred people thinking exactly the same. There will be pa people who are really passionate about talent management and diversity and community engagement. Identifying them. Working with them, you know, 
building a relationship with them. So they are your allies. So it's not your, you're the sole voice saying X, Y, Z needs to be done. Uh, there are people within the institution who agree with you. And you've got to actively do that. A really bad example in a different context was in 2016, if you remember in America, they were all having all these million man marches. And you know, I've made a career of, of sort of tackling, uh, you know, fighting for women's rights, etc. And so I thought a really good idea would be to have a million man march in this country on uh, gender-based violence or against gender-based violence. And you know, I got 52 signups. Um, so I'm 999,948 short. Now, I always saw that as a failure until recently. And what I realized is those 52 people are still people I work with, I still engage with. And they've and in five, six years, they've moved into more senior roles, et cetera, et cetera. So actually, I've got now a really powerful little network of, of people who think like me, want to be like me, you know, want to do make a difference like me. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, really, it's about ally, allyship and building allies and finding out who these allies are. Yeah, absolutely. So a big, a big theme of our book um, is what's, what's driving professions to need to change uh, the way they do business. And it's, it, it's the same things, really, that are impacting on the whole of society. It's the, it's the agile and hybrid era in which we live. It's the data, the data boost, the massive data that we now all uh, live around. Um, and also it's change. It's the pace, complexity and magnitude of change. Uh, we call that change cubed. Um, and the speed of legal change in particular, um, we, we think that that is leading our institutions to struggle to keep up. Is that something that you experienced in the, in the CPS? Absolutely. Not just the CPS. I mean, in all the roles I've had, um, that you, you, you know, what is it? If you, know, you either change or you die, I think is the, um, phrase that's been used in, in, since history began. And I think that, yeah, you know, is a really good position. You have adapted, you keep changing, you keep, um, you know, recognizing, you know, the, listening to your clients and your customers about what, how you can change the, uh, the approach, your approach towards them. Um, and that means that makes you all the things you said, agile, responsive, uh, enables you to, to, to be, to be leaders in the field. Now, those institutions that refuse to do that, and unfortunately there are many of them, uh, how many of them have said to me, we can't do it that way, you know, oh, it's not, it's just a very untraditional way of, you know, I, I, everything is couched in a, you know, somehow I'm, um, you know, I'm saying, I'm speaking a language they don't understand, you know, uh, and guess what? They are, yes, they're, they're still slipping. They're going down and down and down. Like some of them are going out of business. Others are, um, literally haven't moved on and haven't improved. In any way, it's about continuous improvement. Isn't it? It's about ensuring that that is embedded in your organisation. One of the examples I give here is the airline industry, because I remember um, uh, a few years ago I was invited to a, an awards ceremony of an, an airline, and I bet, and I'm stunned by the awards. The awards weren't for best pilot, best steward; they were for the best ideas. You know, they realize that they're, you know, they frontline protecting us all. One mistake, you know, you know, what will what, what, what happen. And so they were, you know, what was the best idea in check-in? What's the best idea in baggage? What's the best idea, um, whatever, you know, whatever it is. Uh, and I thought this is a phenomenal um, way of recognizing improvement and rewarding improvement. Uh, and I think 
you know, I've, I've not emulated that, but I really do think that's the kind of thing. If the organization recognizes this is important to us, then it is important to you. If it, if it goes the old way of best pilots or whatever, you know, uh, then I'm afraid nothing will ever change. And so, um, your change comes from, um, understanding your environment. So, you know, wearing my university hat, you know, the universities have had to change big time in the last 10 years because of student tuition. So until, uh, students paid their own way, it was very much focused on research. Research was everything, you know, uh, and now who's paying the bills, the students are. So teaching now has to be as important as research, you know, at least. Uh, and so your, your clients, your customer, um, the people that you you work with have completely changed the model of how universities need to operate. Uh, and, and that, and that will continue to happen. So, you know, the reality is that, um, you know, if the university didn't do that, well, you guess what? The students would be going somewhere else, uh, and you as an institution would be failing. So, uh, there, you know, there's a recognition that you've got to keep changing and adapting to the environment that we're in, of course. You know, you know, virtual and online environment is a big part of that. You know, 20 years, you mentioned hybrid working earlier on. You know, none of us. I mean, I, we didn't have email in the CPS till about 2000, if I remember rightly, 1999 or something, you know. Uh, and uh, I wish I'd invested in some of that Facebook thing. Anyway, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so, you know, we've gone from that to where we are now. And that's, uh, and that will continue to, to develop over the years and the years to come. And therefore, institutions have to adapt the world and people receive their information in a very different way you know we used to read newspapers didn't we who reads a newspaper these days yeah uh so everything is changing and you've got to adapt and for the legal profession that that might be a bigger challenge than for for most uh we certainly have a reputation uh of being um luddite um but the reality is that there are some of us who see technology as an advantage not a threat um It'd be interesting to to hear your views on on whether you think that advances in technology might aid access to justice, or in fact whether there's a a risk that the gap in the two tier justice system may broaden further as the wealthy will have access to lawyers who are powered with technology, while the poorest will have access to the internet at best and possibly not even that. No, I, I think that's, that is an issue and clearly uh, one that we need to be mindful of. Uh, but, you know, right now, if, if I felt unwell, do you know what the first thing I do? I'm not going to ring my GP. I'm going to Google my symptoms. We do that. Everybody does that. Uh, and, of course, nine times out of ten, it's close to where it needs to be, but obviously uh, it's not an MRI scan. But, but then give, give it a year or two, you might have your own virtual MRI scans uh, available online. So technology is, adapt, is, is growing at a phenomenal I think, strange as it may sound, actually, that the uh, access, access is clearly an issue. You know, if you're a young person, when we when COVID first hit, uh, I'm chair of an FE college as well uh, in a very deprived part of North Manchester. And the the students we had, the first thing was, well, we need to go online. And then we realized most of them don't have an online. Yeah, most of them, never mind not having a laptop or a, uh, they didn't have Wi-Fi. Uh, and... So literally within weeks, we had to ensure um, that they had access to, you know, Wi-Fi or dongles or whatever it is. Uh, dongles just to exist. This is only three years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and so we had, we had to upskill that, 
I've given them a resource that in a, in a way that previously we never thought of. But so you're right, the working classes and the more deprived communities will be behind. And they, and if they don't have access to a lawyer, they can't afford a lawyer. They're going to go online. Um, and the, and then of course there are there are virtual lawyers, but you know I wouldn't trust them as far as I can throw them to be frank uh, right now. Um, but you know they are they do exist, don't they? And so people, you know, the same way that I would Google my medical symptoms, people will be googling their legal symptoms, uh, and that's dangerous uh, for all the reasons that we we can we can forecast. But there's no there's, I'm not canoe none of us can be canoe like and try and stop the waves of of online world it's it's happening and it's going to continue to happen and so we've got to try and ensure that the that we ensure that everybody and particularly those who don't have access themselves have access uh and the uh, or the institution of the law has to change and one example of that uh is and one that i'm very keen on is live streaming of cases um you know every institution surgeons you can go and watch hospital operations you can watch bin men do their job blah, blah. lawyers uh we we don't think the contempt of court had no idea yeah uh we hide from that don't we uh and yeah uh, you know recently um we ha- we've now begun to see the sentencing hearings where the judges people are actually blown away by the fact they're actually seeing this they should see that every hour of every day there is no reason in the days when they had a massive camera yeah you know, and now it's the cameras are smaller than the, you know, the top tip of your finger. They could be everywhere. With protection for victim, uh, vulnerable victims and vulnerable witnesses, yes. But there's no reason why everything can't be live-streamed. Not that I'd want to watch. I don't know about you. I'd be bored to death watching it. But it should be available. Because in the old days, Tony, and this is before even before you and I, uh, people used to sit in the public gallery, didn't they? Uh, and now nobody does that anymore. And if the justice is meant to be for the public, then we've got to make make it available to them. And the other the plus side, and then you know, all AFM laws are downsides. The plus side is that the public will begin to see how justice isn't done in their name. Uh, we will then have to improve. We we'll have to respond to that. You know, we have to speed things up. Uh, whatever need, needs to happen uh, to enable the public to have more confidence in us. Obvious question, but do you think that in particular AI technology uh, is going to advance advance the legal profession and uh, access to justice? Absolutely, I do. Um, and in fact, in two areas, I'm currently working on that. So people are now familiar with AI more so than they have been and scared by recent developments around chat, GPT, et cetera. So that people think, oh my God, you know, you can ask any question and they know all the answers. Uh, it never replaced human judgment. But the point is... Um, in two areas, uh, well, a number of areas, I think mean, AI has massive potential for improving So in two areas where I'm working, uh, one is about predictive uh, policing. So um, being, anal- being able to analyze data the police already collect. For example, automatic number plate recognition. You know, wherever you go anywhere, it records your, your, re- your registration number. Now, um, you will know, you may not know, I don't know, uh, but often um, criminals travel in convoy. So if they're going to break into your house to, to steal your car keys and, and get in a car and take your car, they'll come in another car and then they will leave in your car followed by the car or the cars they came with. Now, AMPR should be able to pick up patterns like that, you know, and being able to identify the convoy ultimately will identify the gangs that are responsible. So I'm currently working with a police force in this country. I'm not allowed to say where because it's a pilot. 
about in the, about doing some predictive policing, which I think will be and because there are other ways of doing so. That, you know, anything that will enable law enforcement to be able to guess in advance and deploy resources accordingly. The second area where I think AI has a massive impact, and again, I'm working with another country, I thought it was able country is, um, is risk assessment. So right now, if you are carrying out a risk assessment, say involved in safeguarding your children, there are lots of, uh, tick, I mentioned tick boxes earlier, but certain questions you have to ask, and if it reaches a certain threshold, then it becomes a safeguarding issue and one requires, uh, it could be high level or medium or low risk. And again, AI gives you the ability to assess the risk posed by offenders, for example. Um, it can help decision makers um, to make more informed decisions. Uh, bail is a good example. Right now, you know, first appearance bail, um, the judge or magistrate is listening to the arguments. Now, I don't see it a long, long way away from when the judge doesn't need to do anything. All those arguments go into a computer who assesses that based around tens of thousands of cases that have gone through the system and says, right, this person's a particular bail risk or not, you know? Shouldn't replace the judge. The judge will then think, yeah, I think that's a good idea. I'll remind him in custody. Well, I think that's a good idea. I'll give him these conditions. So I think risk assessment is a really good way. Case management, I think AI will be really good at streamlining case management. I haven't started to work on that. Uh, analyzing evidence. There are so many options. Uh, and, you know, as old as I am, uh, I, I really do think that uh, we shouldn't be scared of AI. We shouldn't be scared of any technology, but we should be quick to adapt to it. Um, because if we don't, somebody else will. And if somebody else does, then we'll be, we'll, we'll be out of a job. Well, we, we've always said that technology won't replace lawyers, but lawyers that use technology will replace those who don't. Who don't. Um, another feature of AI, of course, is that it is powered by data. AI is a powerful platform, but it needs data to inform it. And there is a risk, of course, uh, rubbish in, rubbish out, but, but yeah. more, uh, a more sinister level, there is a risk that AI could turbocharge biases and inequalities if we're not alive to the danger of inappropriate data going in in the first place. What do you, what do you think we need to do to manage that risk? Okay, well, you're 100% right. I mean, it raises important ethical uh, and legal concerns. Um, you mentioned the potential for bias, um, privacy violations, uh, the lack of transparency, accountability. You know, we, at the moment, if, I, if a human being makes a decision, then they are accountable for that decision. Uh, you know, if an AI makes a decision, well, who's accountable? You know, uh, we'll be able to know that thing in the corner that made that. No, that doesn't work. There still has to be accountability regardless of what you do. I think that more and more institutions are setting up ethics committees. Um, and, and that's really important. So that you, you're ahead of the game trying to identify this would be you know, ethical, this wouldn't be ethical. Um, but it comes out, at the end of the day, it comes out to transparency, Tony. You know, um, when you people are fearful of something, when you're hiding from them or not telling them what ha what's happening, and the more that we're open about what we are doing, and data is, you know, as you say, not AI, nothing can work without data. And of course, AI can be used to analyze vast amounts of data. Um, but we, you know, we've got to ensure the, the integrity of that. We've got to ensure that privacy isn't um, uh, sacrificed or compromised in any way. Uh, uh, that you know, there are legal rules around it, ethical rules around it. And, and once we've done that, I think we're in a good place. But, you know, we have to be, 
there is a number of people, a lot of people now, who are, think that we've gone too far, and uh, and and don't want. Uh, they they're scared of the digital world. Uh, they think the government, for example, you know, digitalizing everything. And um, I'm not. Was it the prisoner? I'm I'm, I'm a man, not a number. You know. Um, you know the idea that um, people are beginning to think that they they not they don't matter anymore. That we don't use money anymore, cash. We're using all digital. Um, you know, it's quite quite dangerous. It's quite scary. But that said, when I was in Africa about fifteen years ago in a particular country, um, I noticed that everybody everybody was using their phone to pay for things. And we, 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 there was, you know, this was a developing country in Africa, and yet they were using their phone to pay for things way before we began to start use. So, you know, for the country, we just we need to move at some pace, but recognize people's concerns. It's it's incredible actually. I think there's a statistic that more people have access to mobile phones than to safe drinking water. Yeah. Um, uh, in terms of this this uh, mixture of humans and technology, that that technology should not be to the exclusion of humans. Um, we believe that technology will actually enable lawyers actually to have the donkey work, the heavy lifting done by machines, so that lawyers can focus on something that historically they haven't been famous for. Empathy. Now, ah, yeah, good, good point. Um, uh, now, some some commentators on the future of law um, rather um, discount the importance of empathy. Um, personally, we take a very different view. We think that empathy has a, a massive part to play, not only to the experience of clients, but also to the outcome that clients get. Would you Would you agree with that? One hundred percent. I mean, I don't. I don't do my job, or I've never done my job, just because uh, one of money. No, public servant, you don't get paid on. But, you know, comparatively, um, you know, it's never been about that. It's a bit about impact. You know, was it? I think it was Maya Angelou said, "It's not about what you do; it's about how you make people feel." You know, and um, I'll give you a good example. Sorry, I prosecuted um, BBC presenter Stuart Hall uh, a decade ago, and um, uh, but. I've got a really poor website. I have not updated it, but it does have a, uh, a co contact page at the back. And I got an email about a year ago, and it said, Dear Mr. Afsar, you won't remember me. I was one of the victims of Stuart Hall. Um, I have terminal cancer. I only have a few weeks to live. I wanted you to know that your prosecution and you believing me was the beginning of my life, and I've had the best 10 years of my life. And then a few weeks later, she passed away. Now, you tell me that it's not worth doing what we're doing. You tell you know, that's what it comes down to: the difference that you make to people's lives, and how you, um, how they connect with you, and how they feel. And you know, I'm, it touches me day in day out. And I don't understand why lawyers want to be removed from that. Is it, does it make it worthwhile? Yeah, you know, we we are process driven. Absolutely, I understand that, and process is important. But as you said a moment ago, AI should automate all of that. So. You can then focus on your human skills, but then the other point I made earlier on is that a lot of us don't have any human skills, <laughs> and, and so we we need to train people in things like that. And uh, but uh, yeah, it's the reason why I do what I do. It's the reason why you do what you do. It's really important to recognise the difference you make to people's lives. We couldn't end on a a, a more salient aspect, I don't think, uh, Nazir. Thank you so much uh, for sparing the time and and giving us your your thoughts on all these really important subjects. You're very welcome and good luck. What a remarkable and insightful interview that was. 
It's such an important subject, and there's still so much to do. I can certainly see how Nazir has inspired many people to break the glass ceiling and to go on to do remarkable things. As we say in our recent book, Legal Practice in the Digital Age, we need to continue to have these discussions and at pace. And we think there's three things we can do, particularly if we are in positions of power or influence. One, we need to be allies to those who are marginalized and underrepresented. As one Law Society report notes, for example, engagement and support from men is critical to achieving true diversity and inclusion in the profession. And it is often men, of course, who are in positions of power in many sectors and industries. Two, we need to be braver in speaking up. I mentioned Barack Obama earlier, who says that we often need to rely on forbearance and goodwill if we, despite our best intentions, put our foot in it. The problem is that we're sometimes afraid of getting it wrong, so we don't engage. The outcome? Nothing changes. We're back at square one, and nothing has been achieved. We need to step out of our comfort zones. And three, we need to push for real change and not treat this as a tick box exercise. We need to stop drafting reams of policies and signing up to numerous charters if they mean nothing on the ground. Creating diverse and inclusive cultures involves cultural change, which is led from the top. So that's it for this edition of Business in a Digital Age. We hope you enjoyed listening, and if you have any thoughts or feedback, please do get in touch. And just a reminder that you can subscribe to the Shoesmiths Podcast Network on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or however you consume your podcasts. Thanks for listening today. Bye for now. <music>